Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm really excited to share my conversation today with Joshua Toplitsky about his book, Prince of the Press. It's a fantastic book, and it opens up a great set of issues about the meaning of books and libraries in Jewish culture, the process of accumulating and transmitting Jewish learning over the generations, as well as how we understand Jewish life in early modern Europe in the widest terms. Joshua Toplitsky is an assistant professor of history at Stony Brook University, Prince of the Press, which tells the story of the Prague rabbi David Oppenheim and his library, is his first book, and it was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. Josh specializes in the history of the Jews in Europe in the early modern period and in the study of books and media. And he's one of the leaders of the Footprints Project, which seeks to document the history of the movement of early printed Jewish books and manuscripts. Prints of the Press is such a phenomenal book on many levels. As I mentioned, it tells the story of David Oppenheim and his collection of books. So it's a micro-history, telling history on a very personal scale. And it's a great topic. Libraries are the kind of thing that academics are obsessed with. But the story of Oppenheim and his library, like all great micro-histories, has something bigger to teach us about the nature of Jewish culture within early modern Europe and about European book culture at large. What does it mean to collect books? How do we transmit knowledge from person to person or from generation to generation? This book, Prince of the Press, helps us to think about all of these things and more. If you look in the show notes, I've shared the book's introduction, and I hope you'll check it out. If you want to purchase the book directly from Yale University Press, you can use the promo code YEPRP for a 25% discount too. Josh and I recorded this in January when I was in New York for a conference. But I think that these big picture issues are timeless about the nature of books, the transmission of knowledge, and its value. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and that you'll check out his book. Thanks for listening. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Of course. I just think this is such a really fascinating, exciting book. It's very kind of you. So, I mean, I think that part of what's really, really cool about this book is that you're talking about a really interesting and fascinating figure in a way that people don't always do. You have an intellectual figure, you have a writer, you have a rabbi, you have, you have somebody, and you talk about what they did. But here you're talking about their books and the physical objects that they had. And so I, I think that what you have here is a really unique approach to thinking about this time period and to thinking about early modern Jewish history. Thank you. That's exactly what I was hoping to go for with this book. I was trying to write what I imagine as a bibliobiography. I really didn't want to produce just a life writing or the life story or the biography of one man. 
I wanted to try to tell something of a different story. And I really wanted to tell a life of objects and specifically of books in motion. And that's what animated, I think, the energy of this book. And honestly, this is not the first draft of this book. The very first time I drafted this book, David Oppenheim's own life was much more at the center of the story. And I, I learned by presenting this work to different audiences that the things audiences responded to most favorably was the story of the books. And I realized in turn that that was because it was the thing that excited me the most. And, and that really affected the way that I ultimately chose to tell the story of this man and his library together. Yeah. So I think that that's like a really good jumping off point for the first thing that I want to talk about, which is like, what is so interesting and exciting about David Oppenheim? What's particularly interesting and fascinating about the story that you are dealing with here? Okay, so we're talking about a man who lived in Central Europe, was born in 1664 and died in 1736, was alive at a particularly, I think, good moment for Jews in Central Europe. The Thirty Years' War had just come to an end. It was a period of relative peace in Europe, and he belonged to a family that was very prosperous. And honestly, the way that I came to this story was by seeing in a number of other books of history about this period, references made to this man. He appeared in the indexes of books or in footnotes or in, in side remarks that other scholars had noticed his presence. And I thought it would be interesting to kind of invert or, or pivot the camera lens to put him at the center of a story rather than at its periphery. And I was already very drawn to this character because of all of the lives that he touched and was touched by during this time. And I thought that that would make him a very useful point to tell a story of any number of different networks or, or paths of contact by putting him at the center of the tale. What you just said is a really great segue to the really big issue I want us to get into. Okay. Which is just to say that this is a really personal story. It's a microhistory is a term that we would use as historians. It's a, a book that really focuses on one individual who's at the center of a whole network of people, but really just one person and his books. But I think that it also really has big implications in a way. So what do you think that the history of David Oppenheim and his library tells us about Jewish life in early modern Europe and also about early modern Europe, more broadly speaking? I guess we could also talk about issues of book culture at large. But I think that if we even just think about just Jewish life in early modern Europe as a whole, and then the broader context, that would really go a long way to thinking about what we learn from looking at this one person, but stepping back. Okay, so thanks, Jason. I, I find it interesting that you have chosen to label the book a micro history, which is not a label I object to or shrug off in any way. The way that I wanted to use the book is to think about how this man responded to certain cultural, political, and social needs during his time. And what I'm hoping to do with the work was to use his life and library to tell us not just about what he did, but about how those responses show us about certain horizons of expectation. Right. So what does it show us about certain horizons of okay. expectation? So here are some of the things that I think it shows us. Number one, I think we learn a lot about how Jewish communities operated during this period. Historians have largely been treated to a rich body of materials that tell us about how 
Jewish communal autonomy worked at this time, but mostly we get to see that through prescriptive documents. We see it through the statutes that are issued by communal elders. We see it through uh, charters that are granted to Jewish communities. One of the things Oppenheim's collection lets us see is all of the informal workings of community, the ties that bind between people, the exchange in an economy of favors and regard that allow things to keep ticking. Yeah. And then if you expand that beyond thinking about the workings of early modern Jewish communities, wh where does this lead us in terms of thinking about early modern Central Europe in general? One of the things I think it allows us to see about early modern Central Europe are the connections across space. As, as you and your listeners probably know, the very fact that we're using the word Central Europe rather than calling it Germany, for example, is because it wasn't Germany at the time. It was at once the Holy Roman Empire and a lot of political entities beyond it that to this day, historians are still kind of grappling with the right kind of terms to use for it. And the story of Oppenheim and his objects in motion and the letters that flowed between one place and another help us to see at once the um, uniqueness of each individual location, but also the way that they were deeply intertwined with each other. I think attention to the way that Jews related to each other in these lands, and more importantly, the way Jews could write from one location to another to enlist the aid of non-Jewish authorities, shows us all of the informal ways that these locations were connected and tied to each other. I think that the transnational or translocal connections between Jews allows us to also identify the threads of contact across Central Europe that might otherwise evade our attention. Let me give you an example. So Oppenheim lived a long life, but for most of that long life, he was chief rabbi of the city of Prague. From 1703 until 1736, he was chief rabbi of the city of Prague, which was home to the largest urban community of Jews in Christian Europe. About one in every four people in the city was Jewish. There was a population of about 11,000 Jews in the city around the year 1700. But Oppenheim used to get requests from Jews from far off locations to help them in their kind of political and communal struggles. In the year 1706, he got a letter from the community of Wesel, which is not far from Munster, which is in Westphalia, which is basically in the far west of the Holy Roman Empire, where a Jew who was hoping to be appointed chief rabbi there wrote to Prague, which is on the opposite end of the Holy Roman Empire, to ask Oppenheim to get his father-in-law, who was in Hanover, in the north of the Holy Roman Empire, so now triangulating in additional figures, to intervene with a prince to apply pressure to a fellow prince in order to affect the outcomes of this elections. And I, I'm sort of deliberately dropping all of these names and places all at once to give a sense of this, this overlapping web of contacts that zigzagged back and forth across the center of the continent and show us how non-sovereign each of these territories were, how these territories relied on and were open to advice and pressure and cajoling from princes and authorities in different places and how aware Jews were of all of this web of this web of contacts between these sovereigns and princes and i think thinking with the example of Jews allows us to follow the thread of the contacts between sovereigns and princes and dukes as well it allows us to get a sense of all of these close contacts between these disparate locations. And I think it's significant, especially in that all of this happens in the years after 1648. Traditionally, we think of the year 1648 as the beginning of state sovereignty, 
the Treaty of Westphalia as being the beginning of state sovereignty. And what this story reminds us is that state sovereignty was far from together at this time, that we're, we're looking at all kinds of networks and ties and contacts between disparate locations. Right. I mean, I think that what you're saying here uh, is that, that looking at the Jews and looking at Oppenheim and his network helps us to think about the nature and the operation of the Holy Roman Empire, broadly speaking. Thank you. That's a great gloss. I think that's correct. But what about the books, right? So you're talking about the contacts and the network, but then how does this translate into thinking about the library? Ah, great. Because virtually every time that one of these letters arrived with Oppenheim, they came connected to books. Clients across the Holy Roman Empire and beyond knew that the way to David Oppenheim's network of power was through his heart, and the way to his heart was through the gift of a book. They would often send books as gifts, a way to curry favor with him. And if we explore the inscriptions in which somebody dedicates this gift of a book to Oppenheim, we can learn a lot more about how these contacts operated. It's by following the flow of these inscriptions as books moved from different parts of the continent into Oppenheim's library that we begin to see this web of contacts emerge. So I love how you're talking about not what's in the books, but about some of the physical aspects of the books. And I want to get to this a bit later when we talk about the Footprints project that you are so deeply involved in, which focuses on this aspect in particular. But for now, I want to, I want to think a bit more about Oppenheim and about the books, which is to say that, that one of the reasons why I was so excited to read the book is because I think that as an academic, I love books personally. <laughs> and I think that a lot of academics, a lot of people who are interested in history also kind of feel the same way. I think not just academics. You know, when I talk publicly about this book, I watch people's eyes light up. Books do hold a special sway over many of us. Our books are meaningful to us. Yeah, yeah. This is really what I want to get into here. One of the things that you do in the book, and you make a couple references to this throughout it, is ways in which there's this kind of fetishistic relationship with books. And uh, you make a couple of offhand references to Walter Benjamin in particular, uh, who is kind of like the go-to person for for book fetishization in a way, right? You have an epigraph from Walter Benjamin's you know, Unpacking My Library. And then you can even just look at other pieces that Benjamin wrote that you didn't cite as specifically, like In the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, which is another one of his most famous essays. And in all of these elements you see in Benjamin and, and elsewhere too, this attraction and the attachment to the physical. And you talk about how people love books. But what do we learn from looking at a case like Oppenheim and his library and his attachment to books and the meaning of books within this history in an age of Kindles and PDF files, ebooks, etc.? Sure. Well, so why don't we start by thinking about what books meant to people in the 17th and 18th centuries when Oppenheim was bringing his library together. But you're absolutely right that I deliberately invoke Benjamin, who, who is separated from Oppenheim by three centuries to launch into this book, to think about what it means to be a collector. And you're absolutely correct that to be a collector means to know the physicality of books. It's not, it's not to be a person of ideas alone, but actually to cherish the very things that bear those ideas, the objects that, are, that carry the ideas in the books themselves. In the 17th century, books were important both to individuals as items to be cherished and we can note this by browsing some of the objects in the collection that have registers of family births and deaths, for uh -huh. example, or individual miracle stories. 
but books were also important for power and politics and legitimacy. In the 17th century, we witnessed the emergence of libraries that are paid for by governments. They're not public libraries by any stretch of the imagination. They're the private libraries of kings and princes and dukes that are designed in order to both facilitate the exercise of power and also to physically represent that exercise of power. The knowledge power continuum operates in two directions. And so libraries in this period were more than just the province of individual collectors. They were also aids to good governance and symbols of governing authority. And I think that Oppenheim was participating in this culture. I think as chief rabbi of the city of Prague, he was at once an individual lover of books. But I think that he was also working to represent himself as an authoritative holder of knowledge, an arbiter of Jewish life in legal, political, social, and cultural spheres. Books conferred authority upon him. And dare I even say it, one doesn't even necessarily have to read all of one's books. The very fact of owning books physically represents, manifests the authority, the wisdom, the know-how that comes with the contents of those books. So then would you say that in this time period, owning a lot of books was one manifestation of conspicuous consumption? Precisely. This was a form of symbolically projecting power and authority. And Oppenheim had learned that lesson well. He was the nephew and son-in-law of the so-called court Jews. And those court Jews had operated in the halls of power of, of princes and kings and emperors of Europe, who were precisely the ones who were building these libraries. We're watching a kind of diffuse manifestation of culture and power that was shared by the emperor in Vienna and by the chief rabbi of Prague, who all knew that books conferred authority. Right. So I think that you've laid out really clearly some of the ways in which books in the early 18th century, in the time of David Oppenheim, were important political objects. I want to bring this forward a bit, because one of the things that you talked about, which was really interesting, was the way in which part of the power of books as political objects was that these were privately owned. They were part of a private library of a king, you know, prince, an individual, whatever. And one of the interesting things that you have also talked about in the book is the way in which the story of Oppenheim and his library is in a way at the hinge of historical development from courts to nation, right? We can talk about in the course of the 18th century, the creation of public cultures. And this, of course, has to do with the rise of nationalism and so many other things where things that were once the private realm of aristocratic authorities, right? Kings and princes, et cetera, come into the public sphere. One of the best examples that I use with my students when I talk about this is in the Tower of London, they kept animals. This was the, the private menagerie of, of, the, of the English kings. And that transforms eventually into zoos where you have the public ability. This is over many, many centuries, right? But, but you have the public ability to view the animals. And there are all sorts of elements. This is like a whole separate thing. But I'm using this as an example to talk about the transformation of the private into the public. And so as you think about the transformation of libraries from private to public, and also just in general, the transformation of book culture over the centuries. When you think about the story of David Oppenheim and of his library and books as political objects in his time, do you think that books are still political objects today? And in what ways is it maybe different? Oh, interesting. I'll say two things to that. The first is one of the things that I find fascinating about the afterlife of Oppenheim's library 
was that it didn't become the public common possession of Jews. Jews tended to not be particularly interested in the creation of a public library. Over the second half of the 18th century and certainly through the 19th century in, in many parts of Europe, we watch Jews as they struggle for citizenship and emancipation find ways to demonstrate their integration rather than their separate character. And so the Oppenheim Library kind of becomes an orphan between Oppenheim's death in 1736 and later periods. And I know we're going to, let's return to this in a little bit. But I do want to point out that whereas other libraries, like you're talking about, let's say the Tower of London, move from being private property to common property, the Oppenheim Library doesn't undergo that same kind of thing. Because Jews didn't think of themselves in this period as a national people, as a sovereign state-focused people, we don't see the same kind of emergence of a, of a common possession of these books. Jews have a very different set of cultural and political agendas. And so the Oppenheim Collection also shows us a kind of failure, a, a disinterest in a common Jewish power as Jews work to integrate into the larger polities in which they lived. I mean, it's really interesting because especially since you call him the prince of the press, I mean, I know that the titles don't always come from the author. Usually it's the press's marketing department, but maybe it's No, yours. I was very happy with calling him the prince of the press. And I did this for deliberate reasons. We see an acknowledgement of Oppenheim's role, his title of prince, both in letters that get sent his way, manuscript handwritten letters that are written to him, and also in all kinds of publications. Oppenheim cultivated this image himself in a in a broadsheet, a large kind of poster that he had printed and disseminated that told people that he was prince of Jerusalem or prince of the land of Israel. We see it in titles that are given to him when he writes his endorsements to books, Aprobata, Haskamot, to Jewish books, often bear this title as well. And we also see opposition to it in a fairly sensational trial that it began in the year 1718 when Oppenheim was criticized by the government for arrogating to himself this princely title. And so I was very happy to call this book Prince of the Press, not just for the wordplay, but also for the way that it captured a kind of royalty. And and for me, that was very deliberate because I wanted to explore the ways in which Oppenheim was participating in a kind of courtly culture. In the introduction to every chapter of the book, there's an epigraph that comes from an advice manual for building a library. It's an advice manual that I'm certain Oppenheim never read. It was written in France, and I have no evidence of him ever seeing this, but it captures the spirit of an age in which courts, in which ruling elites understood that there was power in collecting. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to think of Oppenheim as, as akin to princes and dukes and forms of nobility who were building libraries to fashion their own authority, and to think of him in a genuine fashion as a prince of his own making as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that it's always useful to use the terms that the people themselves use. So the fact that Oppenheim and his contemporaries use the terminology of a prince to refer to him, is just really fascinating on the one hand, but it, it really does give this title a lot more legitimacy in a certain way. But I think that it also is important because, as you mentioned before, it ties together this story of the court Jews with the broader developments of book culture what's the connection there between the position of court Jews in early modern Europe and the political power of books? And one can also think about this more broadly speaking in terms of the power of information 
and the so-called Royal Alliance mm. of the Jews. Mm. It's funny to hear you talk about the Royal Alliance. A different observer, a much more polemical observer of Jewish life in this period, Hannah Arendt, once referred to court Jews as dictators in their communities. She was no great fan of the court Jews. And I think that's because she very astutely recognized that they were the real holders of power in Jewish communities. They weren't democratically appointed. They weren't meritocratically appointed. They weren't appointed at all. They were the holders of power because they were the wealthiest elites. And I think what we see in Oppenheim is something akin but slightly different to that. He was a relative of men of power, but his books conferred authority on that power. And here we see the very intimate but delicate relationship between the exercise of power and the legitimacy that that power is cloaked in. And the libraries of this period, I think, are really important instruments for legitimating the use of power. So I want to go back to a couple of things that, that we've kind of touched upon briefly before, which is that we talked a little bit about the connection between Oppenheim's library and the transformation from court to nation. And also you mentioned a bit before also the afterlife of Oppenheim's library. Do you maybe want to say something briefly about the history and afterlife of Oppenheim's library as it relates to the broad phenomena that we can talk about in the emergence of modern Europe, like the creation of the centralized sovereign nation state, the growth of the public sphere, and so on and so forth? Probably the first thing that's worth saying is the entire library exists today. What made this project possible is that every last one of these books, as best as I can tell, are extant. Anybody who visits the Bodleian Library in Oxford can take a look at any of these books and manuscripts there. And the path from Prague to Oxford was a twisted one. In fact, Oppenheim didn't even have these books with him for much of his 30-plus year tenure in Prague. Those books were in Hanover in northern Germany, in the home of his father-in-law, where they would be much safer than they would have been in Prague. In Prague, they would have been subject to the watchful eyes of the censor of the Catholic Counter-Reformation. And in Hanover, they were safer, they were at home, they were, they were much better protected. But the path even from Hanover to Oxford is, is an almost hundred-year history, mostly of neglect and disinterest. The Oppenheim family's fortunes waned after the 1730s. They often looked to the library as a way to ameliorate their great debt. And the way that they tried to sell this collection, and the fact that they couldn't find buyers for most of the 18th and into the 19th century, also, I think, tells us about shifting Jewish cultural and political priorities. Uh, that's not to say that great evaluators didn't think that this was a very important library. Moses Mendelssohn visited the collection and assessed it as being worth somewhere between 50 and 60,000 Reichstaler. But nobody appeared to want it. There was no sort of central Jewish political and economic authority or authoritative body that wanted to lay claim to this collection in the name of Jews everywhere. Because at this time, Jews weren't trying to constitute themselves as a central unified, sovereign, national body. Jews were understanding themselves as part of a French nation, an emerging German nation, um, very much a part of their local political cultures. And so for that reason, it, it almost makes sense that the books were regularly prepared for auction and that those auctions of the collection as a whole tended not to work. And it was really only when the collection was put up for auction in 1826 in Hamburg that it was 
discovered, if you will, by an agent of the Bodleian Library at Oxford who was authorized to make a bid for the collection as a whole. And in the summer of 1827, those books were packed up and ultimately made their way to Oxford by 1829, where they have been till this day. And the fact that that the Bodleian Libraries, rather than a self-identified Jewish collection, took them up, I think tells us about uh, different cultural and even political priorities during this time. Yeah, so I think this is a really important issue. I think that that looking at the afterlife of the library tells us a lot about, like you said, the changing cultural priorities of Jews over the course of modern times and also other groups. And I guess this is just my way of prompting you to maybe say a bit more about why those books mattered so much to Oppenheim and less so to the generations that followed him of his heirs and, and his family and perhaps the Jewish communities more broadly speaking and how that relates then to the way in which books have come to be, you know, again, so important as we think about, for instance, the formation of Jewish libraries. In my case, I look at Jewish archives. You know, what is changing over the course of modern Jewish history that, that we can trace out by thinking about the pathway of this library? You know, I think this is something that you and I would probably have to get at together. You know more about modern archives <laughs> than I do. And I, I know I, I think a bit about the older ones. It's also hard to reconstruct a history of indifference. People don't usually leave a lot of documents behind about the things they don't care about. They tend to write about the things that they do care about. But we do have moments of the Oppenheim collection where the idea is mooted that this library might be good for something. In the middle of debates over Jewish emancipation in Germany, there are ideas that maybe this library would be useful to regenerate the Jews, to make them better citizens. And then that idea is abandoned, perhaps because the expectation is, at least by the proponents of this program, the Jews need to be somehow less submerged in Jewish culture and more involved and integrated into the cultures that surround them. The kind of waning interest in this library, the waning interest in the considerable material and political resources that need to go into this library might tell us something about the shifting fortunes or really the, the shifting political winds about expectations about what Jews should be and what Jews should know and how Jews should think. We, we might be seeing, to paraphrase a much later observer of Jewish life, we might be seeing the emergence of an idea of being a Jew at home and a person in the street. And, and perhaps the particularism of a Jewish collection is something that was falling out of fashion in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, at least for people of wealth, power, and status who would have been able to maintain a collection of this sort. That's not to say rampant secularism on the part of Jews, but instead to say that the people who had money, power, and influence may have seen their interests and the interests of their co-religionists best served not in a language of particularism, but one of universalism instead. I mean, I think that you're onto something in terms of thinking about how these issues all connect to each other. I, I think the thing that we're sort of getting at together is that by the late 19th century, the political winds had changed once again. Whereas languages of common citizenship had been the order of the day, specifically in the French Revolution and in others of its nature, by the late 19th century, we witness instead the power of national particularism, the power that, that a nation is the best guarantor of a people's safety and the sovereignty is the best guarantor of that as well. 
And that's, I think, when we begin to see important movements of cultural autonomism, like by the folks at Evo, for example, and many others, who believe that Jews need to preserve a kind of shared nationhood, a shared political peoplehood, and that books, documentation, and archival preservation are the paths to do that. We might even be able to follow the flows of archival preservation as telling us about forms of political activism. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. We don't really have the time to do that here. So one of the things that, that I'm just thinking about as, as we're talking about all of this is that we often talk about objects and their afterlives and, and what they tell us about different things. And so in that respect, I think that, that the story of the Oppenheim Library is actually in a certain way kind of parallel to other histories of collections or cultural property, especially when we think about how the Oppenheim Library eventually made its way to the Bodleian Library in Oxford, it reminds me a lot actually about the story of the Cairo Geniza. You know, you even, I think, mentioned it at one point in the book that this is perceived by the British as an Oriental collection. The, the Oppenheim Library is seen as an Oriental collection because it comes from an Eastern part of Europe. You can still consult it in the Oriental collections and Oriental reading rooms at the Bodleian Libraries to this day. Exactly. So you have a, so to speak, Oriental collection that makes its way to a British institution. I think that if you think about the, the Cairo or even something like the Elgin Marbles, uh, which make their way, of course, to the British Museum, what is going on here in terms of the politics of cultural ownership? I really do think that that is a part of it. I think that we are watching uh, prestigious and wealthy institutions from the West, and certainly Britain as it is emerging ever more onto the imperial stage in the 19th century, understand itself as the legatee of the world's cultural treasures. Uh, and we see a kind of consolidation, both in the hands of state-sponsored and forms of private enterprise in, in the United Kingdom that accrue to themselves treasures from other places in order to demonstrate that this imperial power is, once again, not just a power, but also a legitimate exerciser of that power, and that the preservation of and the very holding of those cultural treasures in the imperial centers does provide legitimacy and authority to the exercise of this global imperial reach. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's part of a much bigger history of the construction of libraries as symbols of power, going back all the way to, I don't know, Alexandria. I think so. And I think you've, you've responded to it really neatly. I will say on the flip side, though, that, you know, we've been sort of casting our story that we've been telling here or in our discussion so far, we've been noting the way a failure of Jews to care about this collection points to certain Jewish cultural priorities at a given time. But I should also say that we, we might avoid essentializing, we might avoid imagining a monolithic Jewish approach to this mm -hmm, collection, mm -hmm. because the library continued to have Jewish visitors to it throughout the 19th and 20th, and of course, 21st century as well, who lamented the fact that it wasn't a Jewish controlled collection. Some visitors to it marveled at the fact that it was a collection that had been built by Jews, but that was under the custodianship of Christians. In the early 1930s, an English Jew who lived in London and used to commute out to Oxford daily to study the Oppenheim collection and transcribe some of its materials, lamented the fact that the collection was in Oxford rather than in Germany, where it would have been attended to in much greater numbers 
by the robust Jewish population of Germany. And I repeat again, this was in the early 1930s when some might have foreseen what was on the horizon, but, but it's hard to believe that, that many could have. But this was before 1933. This was right. before 1933. This yeah. was before 1933. So, so but as, as late as the 1930s, you know, we can see it with the, with the benefit of hindsight. But as late as the 1930s, there were people lamenting that this wasn't a Jewish-held collection in lands that had much larger populations of Jews. Right. I mean, I think it, it ties into, more broadly speaking, the history of the construction of, of certain kinds of libraries. So, for instance, in an early part of the book, you talk about universal libraries, right? Like, was this meant to be a Jewish universal library? Should it include all the, the texts of Jewish culture as they existed at the time? And, of course, this is connected with the history of the idea of the universal library, the Bibliotheca Universalis, in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, and then, of course, also later on, we also have the emergence of the idea of a national library. And you also, I think, at some point reference this question, you know, to what extent should this be seen or was it seen at the time as kind of a Jewish national library or a national collection? And of course, that was not really in the context of Zionism or Jewish nationalism in particular. But I think that one of the things that this really illustrates is the pathway of libraries through different iterations of their understanding of how they function and what they should be doing and so on and so forth. I agree. I agree. I really think for Oppenheim that the collection of this library was driven by an understanding of a common Jewish culture that, that Jews globally participated in, and that would be intelligible to Jews regardless of their location. And I, I think you're, you're correct in noting that the waning interest in this library perhaps might point us to these ongoing competing tensions between ties between Jews across places to the way that Jews were intimately bound up with the spaces and places in which they lived. And, and the scales tilted at different times in different ways. So I want to move forward a bit to another set of issues, which is that it seems to me that there's a very close connection between what you've been doing in this book and in your particular research and the other kinds of activities that you've also been participating in. So I think there's, there's, there's very clearly a connection between this book and, and your broader kind of and your broader research agenda and the other kinds of scholarly things that you've been doing in particular as part of the footprints project so i was wondering if you could maybe say a few words about the ties between your research for this book on oppenheim and his collection and the work of the footprints project and what you and your colleagues you know who've been involved in that are doing there great i was hoping we'd get to talk about this now, while this book is a, is a single authored monograph, Footprints is a digital humanities project that is totally co-led by four equal partners. It emerged out of conversations that began at the Center for Jewish History in a scholars working group on the history of the book that was co-convened by Adam Shear at the University of Pittsburgh and Marjorie Lehman at the Jewish Theological Seminary. And as the conversations from that scholars work group wound down, the group was charged to think about where to go next. And a series of conversations pushed uh, its conveners and then me and Michelle Chesner, the Judaica librarian at Columbia University Libraries, to come together and think about an ambitious, some might say overly ambitious, project that would construct a database to track the movement of Jewish books from the moment of their printing through all of their wanderings across the globe. And we're on our way. 
we're on our way. There's a live website that you and your listeners can check out that we invite people to contribute to and to search and query and have fun with to explore the way that the movement of books tells us stories about individuals that often don't get captured by the larger historical record and also the way that thinking about the movement of books in the aggregate tell us something about the exchange of knowledge across regions and territories tell us about what people were reading and thinking, and also give us a sense about the histories of collections and how their meanings have risen and fallen, depending on different cultural moments. The project starts by tracking books that were produced, the very first printed books in 1469, and it uses owner's inscriptions and stamps and censor's marks to tell us about all of the people whose life stories intersected with these material objects. So when you think then about sort of what we learn from the story of Oppenheim and and his books and the pathway that those books took over time, which really is the focus of the Footprint Project, more broadly speaking, to trace the, the pathways that books took over the course of early modern Europe into the present, what are we gaining then from looking at this aspect of book culture in the Footprints Project and also in this particular book? So I'll say one of the things Oppenheim's collection lets us do is we learn more than just how one man felt about books. because frozen in time in the collection are all kinds of previous owners inscriptions in the books. People who often make lists of the very small number of books they owned or give us a sense of the way that they related to these materials. It provides for a much more democratic, wider history because this book about prints of the press is absolutely an elite book. It doesn't allow us to tell the stories or rather this book, Prince of the Press, is a story of one elite man, but it does allow us to tell the stories of lots of other users of books. And our goal in Footprints as well is to try to recover the stories of owners, readers, viewers, sellers, buyers of books well beyond the great men of history and to think about how knowledge moves in waves, not just through the power of a single individual alone. Yeah. And so then what, what are we gaining by bringing all of this together? What we gain from bringing it all together is to be able to ask and answer questions of cultural transfer. We, we might be able to test theories that have been raised by scholars about what people knew, but we can really push those to learn about the paths of knowledge. How far, for example, were the presses of Venice influential in Krakow? What did Ashkenazic Jews read that were produced in Sephardic countries? And what did Sephardic Jews read that were produced in Ashkenazic ones? What was the market penetration of the Kabbalah, for example, and how meaningful was that to the lives of people? Okay, so let me use one of those questions to kind of delve in. I know that you don't have necessarily have the answer to this off the top of your head. The research needs to be done. When you ask a question like one of the ones that you just mentioned, What were Ashkenazi Jews reading that came from Sephardic places or Sephardic communities, Sephardic cultures? And you can look at this through looking at the book inscriptions and so on and so forth. When you ask a question like that, and I know that you might not have the specific answer to the question itself, but what do we learn from being able to ask these kinds of questions? And like a question like that in particular. Sure. I think we learn about the connections between Jews in different places. And we also learn about the local flavors of Jewish culture and existence in different times. It forces us not to imagine that all Jews were conversant with all kinds of Jewish cultures, not that we ever really would do that, but it it provides us with an empirical basis to think about how 
Jews living in different places might have favored, preferred, or simply only had access to certain kinds of Jewish literatures and how that might have shaped their particular local cultures, even as they understood themselves to be part of wider, more global forms of association. Okay, so so we only have a few more minutes. And there's one more thing that I really want us to talk about and to think about, which is that we have been talking a lot about the books as objects and the collections and how they have moved from place to place and how they essentially have gotten to us today. But this is in a lot of ways different from the way that people usually use books. Usually we pick up a book, we want to read what it contains. We want to look at the text, look at the argument of the author, look at you know, what they're trying to say. But when we think about books in the way that you're pushing us to, why do you think that the history of where books were, the history of large collections like Oppenheimer's or of individual books, Codices and Cannabola, manuscripts like the ones that you are dealing with in the Footprints Project, you know, why do you think it matters to think about who owned the books, where they were, how they got from place to place, and how they get to us today? So I think one of the things that we learn, and one of the things I think that we all know intuitively, is that books come from other books. Every writer who begins to tell a story or an inquiry, an investigation into the past or the present, or even to imagine a future, is doing that first by building upon ideas that have been channeled their way. And ideas travel in books, and the way that we get those ideas are through the social contacts that we have. And so one of the premises of this book is that if we want to know about cultures of knowledge, we have to think about all of the various social and intellectual networks that go into bringing a book together. It's the kind of thing that you see in the acknowledgements to just about any book. Sometimes we skip those, the long list of names. I want to thank all of the people who helped to bring this book into existence. But those are really important. The company that we keep shape the questions that we ask, shape the materials that we're exposed to from which to derive answers. And so I felt it was very important in this book to think about the way that Oppenheim facilitated not just his own ideas through the context that he kept, but also facilitated the production of knowledge by others. And I wanted to think very, very carefully about the way that the making of knowledge happens through the meeting of individuals and not out of the pen of any solitary genius alone. And what I'm hoping also emerged from that story was that this wasn't just a meeting of men, but was instead a meeting of all kinds of figures. Oppenheim's books came to him through widows who left them behind, through helpers who collected his papers and, and organized them and put them in order. Sometimes those papers were destroyed by angry mobs when they ransacked the houses of his uncle. That historical circumstances and, and the company we keep are essential to the ideas that we make. Yeah, I mean, I just one more thing I'll just add very quickly. You talk about acknowledgements. There was a great article in the American Historical Review recently about acknowledgements and what we learned from reading them, meaning this part of the book that most people just totally ignore. Those, skip are, over. those are always the first things I read. First things I read, I flip to the acknowledgements to try to understand who was the intellectual community that helped to shape this book. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is the best moment for me to acknowledge the, the massive intellectual community that, that helped to shape my book as well. It was in dialogue with people at the Footprints Project, with my teachers, with my students, with colleagues, through all kinds of, of different venues that, that really sharpened the questions I was asking, that pointed me towards new readings, that 
prodded me to re-envision old readings, the meeting of minds are, are, are the things that bring a book together. Oh, absolutely. Oh, thank you again so much. This thank has been you. fun. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. And thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Josh Toplitsky about early modern book culture and his book, Prince of the Press. If you want to check out the book's introduction, I've shared a PDF from the press in the show notes. And if you use the promo code YEPRP while buying the book from Yale University Press, you can get 25% off. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.